Father, we thank you for your grace to us and um, even just seeing us here this morning, um, your grace in waking us up to live another day under your care. And what a gift we have to sit under your word, Lord. And we just pray that you would uh, be glorified this morning. God, we pray that you would give us hearts that are soft and ears that can hear your voice through your word. Pray that you would give us hearts, Lord, to believe where we doubt, to trust in you and your goodness. Lord, that you would give us hearts filled with your love so that we might love you and love others well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week I came across an article and the headline read this, man sits on park bench alone, belts out Bon Jovi rock classic, mass sing-along ensues. And the story reads, quote, the man is sitting on a park bench and it's not long before he starts belting out the words to Bon Jovi's rock hit, living on a prayer. The story reads, and the article goes that several groups of park goers are nearby, but the man remains unfazed as he sings with gusto, Gina works the diner all day. I'm not going to sing that. But a few bars into the well-known tune and numerous voices can be heard singing and joining in with a rock fan, oh, we're halfway there, oh, oh, living on a prayer. Singing, it really does have a universal appeal. And I think that's because we were made that way. Now, some of us may not like others hearing us sing, but we sing for lots of reasons. We sing whether we're happy or we're sad. We sing to take our mind off other things or to remember. One pastor said singing is a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to him in meaningful and memorable ways. Aretha Franklin said about music and singing, it does a lot of things. It's transporting. It can take you right back, years back, to the very moment certain things happened in your life. It's uplifting, it's encouraging, it's strengthening. And she was right. And Moses and the biblical writers knew this as well. In large part, that's why this song in Exodus 15 is recorded here. And it's why the story of what God did at the Red Sea made it into several of the Psalms, which are songs, so that God's people would sing and remember and be strengthened. Now, this morning we'll be in Exodus 15. It's the ESV version at page 53 in the back of the pews if you need one. And if you're joining us kind of midstream, I will be a good friend and I will catch you up on where we've been. God's people, Israel, had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. God saw their oppression, and he heard their cries, and he came to their rescue. And so he raises up Moses to deliver his people and to lead them out. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was a cruel tyrant, and God had hardened his heart, and Pharaoh would refuse to let Israel go. And finally, after 10 miraculous plagues, Pharaoh would finally let God's people go, only to change his mind again. And he would pursue Israel. Like a ravenous wolf after its prey, his chase would strike fear in God's people. And if you look back at chapter 14, verse 10, it says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. 
They feared because they were vulnerable and they were in the crosshairs of this oppressor. And as we saw last week, Israel now pressed between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea with seemingly no way out. God would intervene. The God who had led them out would not leave them nor forsake them. And he would shield them with his presence. He would be the hedge of protection between Israel and her enemies with the pillar of cloud. Chapter 14, verse 19. And God would make a way. He would split the sea and lead his people through on dry ground. And as for Israel's pursuers, what happened to them? We read this last week. And that's what brings us to this passage this morning. In chapter 15, we find ourselves this morning at the edge of the other side of the Red Sea. Can you see it? Some two million Israelites gathered on the seashore. Can you hear it? The gentle surf of the tide rolling in with the dead bodies of their enemies washing up on the beach. Chapter 14, verse 30. Can you imagine the relief? I mean, they were, they were goners. And now they were safe. And so what's the first thing they do? They sing. Theologian Phil Riken says, Salvation always demands a response, a response of praise that is most suitably expressed in singing. Exodus 15 is known as the song at the sea. Or your Bible might say Moses' song or Miriam's song. The title of the sermon is the song of the redeemed. And the context that I provided up until this point is crucial. Because the song at the sea, sung with all intense praise and joy and confidence, is born in the experience of the dire conditions and desperation of chapters 1 through 14. Said another way, you can't really sing Exodus 15 songs unless you first experienced an Exodus 14 deliverance. Passionate praise comes from desperate deliverance. And so our sermon flow this morning, we'll be looking at the song, and in theme 1... I've got two themes. Theme one is this. God's people praise him for defeating their enemies in verses 1 through 12. God's people praise him for defeating their enemies. The second theme we'll look at is God's people praise him for leading them home. Verses 13 through 18. God's people praise him for leading them home. And then I'll conclude with three brief applications. Two themes Three brief applications. God's people praise him for defeating their enemies. Verses 1 through 12. Let's look at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, if you scroll all the way down, or scan, scroll, or if you're on a phone maybe, but scan down to verse 20 and 21, you have Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, with tambourine in hand, leading the women in a similar song. This is a form of call and response singing. They're alternating choirs, if you will. Most likely Moses in the men, followed by Miriam in the women. But Israel's song was clear. The Lord had won the victory. And it was glorious. 
It was jaw-dropping, sea-splitting, enemy-conquering, glorious, and all the glory was the Lord's. Israel couldn't claim any credit here. They didn't bring about the plagues. They couldn't harden Pharaoh's heart. They certainly didn't split the sea. All they had was fear and a God who hadn't forgotten them. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of their fathers. Verse 2, they sing, My God and my Father's God. The God who had already claimed them as his people, who, who had ordained their deliverance a thousand years earlier, Genesis 15, verses 13 through 14. It says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, So we're going back. Know for certain, Abram, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. You see, the battle plans and the outcome were already determined. And he reminds Moses of this at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Verses 16 and 17, it says, go, so God says to Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. This phrase, the Lord, used here in verses 1 and 2 is, is actually Yah. Uh, in Hebrew, it's short for Yahweh, God's name, the self-existent, eternal, and unchangeable Lord. And so they sing Yah as this poetic expression of affection and devotion. God is their strength and their song, their salvation, and their God. If you look down a little bit further in verse 3, you see they also praise God for being a man of war. Or your version might say, the Lord is a warrior. Now, you may not think of God that way, but God is a warrior. He would not be passive. He heard the cries of his people, and he would act. Like a valiant soldier who would go to war for his people, the Lord would flex his might. If you look at verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The right hand speaks to his divine power, his personal intervention to save. Psalm 26 is a reference there, which says this, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving right of his, might, his right hand. So if a passerby had heard Israel singing on this day, it was clear that God had came to their rescue that he had defeated their enemies and that he alone deserves all the glory. So what about us today? What do those around us learn about God through the songs that we sing? Yes, I think there's definite application for a church family that gathers and the songs that we sing matter. And I think it's always a good question to ask. Could someone come to Covenant Life's gatherings and could they hear the gospel just through the singing alone? That is, a, that is a noble thing. That is a good thing. That is a right thing to do. And I'm grateful for our leadership and how they lead us that way.
But how about the songs that we sing throughout the week? You know, like the lyrics that we play in our mind and that roll off of our tongue. The content of our daily worship. Are we fixed on him, his character, what he has done? Or are we just fixed on self? Maybe for you, praising God is hard. Maybe your songs are flat. I'm not talking about your key. I'm talking about your heart. And I think we can all relate to seasons in our lives when it's hard to sing. So a couple diagnostic statements for us. If praising God is hard for you, it could mean that you're taking credit for victories that you didn't win. Israel is not singing like this to God if they believe that they had something to do with escaping Pharaoh. You may be suffering from the disease of pride and self-sufficiency. And the opportunity that you have today is to repent and to turn to God and see him as the sufficient one and the only savior. If praising God is hard for you, then it could mean that you have lost sight of just how bad your situation was apart from Jesus. Jesus told the woman in Luke 7 that our worship of him correlated to the depth of our forgiveness. And if we're loving little, it's because our view of his mercy is too small and obscured. To sing with Exodus 15 passion requires an Exodus 14 kind of deliverance. And so is your view of what God has done for you in Christ too small and obscured? Or third diagnostic question, if singing is hard for you. It could mean that your heart is having trouble believing that he is the warrior God who comes to the aid of his people. We feel like he's not hearing our cries or unable to handle our enemies or just doesn't care. And if you could hear the voices of Israel on this day, their song is schooling us to believe that he does hear and he does care and he is our warrior. And so their songs are recorded through the pages of our Bible that we might sing and remember and be strengthened. Church, if the parting of the Red Sea can make God's people sing like this then, how much more for us, for us who are this on this side of the empty tomb? We have so much to sing about. God's people praise him for defeating their enemies. And we learn something about the enemy here in verse 9, which gets us really, it's interesting. This song starts to get into the mind of Pharaoh. If you remember in chapter 14, Pharaoh is in hot pursuit. And he sees vulnerable Israel sitting there like little ducks. Chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, it doesn't say ducks. But they're very vulnerable. And in this song, the Israelites give voice to their enemy. Verse 9 says this. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. This is what the enemy is saying about God's people. And Israel singing this. Pharaoh was filled with this arrogance. He thought he had them that he was going to somehow capture and re-enslave God's people. And it's interesting to note in the Hebrew uh, language, it, there's this poetic element. It's a very staccato style of speech in verse 9. It's like barking orders. It's almost like Israel's mimicking the Egyptians in their song and mocking. 
I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide, I will draw my sword, I will destroy. But verse 10 is equally abrupt in expression. As if to say anything they can do, the Lord can do better. Verse 10 says, Lord, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. The Lord exhaled and he ended the Egyptian army. The floods of God's judgment crashed over and enveloped his enemies like the floods of Noah's day. God's victory over Pharaoh was rapid and total. Verse 7 says, this is what they sing. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble, like fire to dry grass. It was instantaneous. And this word stub, stubble here is interesting because it echoes uh, the beginning of Exodus when Pharaoh made Israel gather stubble for straw to make their work more difficult. In chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 12. And so using this word here was their way of saying and singing, God saw and he was just and he gave them what they deserved. As we read the story of Pharaoh's pursuit of God's people and we consider all of biblical history and even world history, we're reminded that there is always an enemy behind the enemy. Satan hunts God's people today like a roaring lion to devour them, 1 Peter 5.8 says. He is like the thief in John 10 who comes to steal, kill, and destroy your friendships and your families and your marriages and your church family and you. And even the enemy of our own sin in Genesis 4.7, God describes as, quote, crouching at the door, desiring to have us. And when Jesus died on the cross, taking the penalty for our sins, Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As Martin Luther wrote in the song that we just sang, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Or like verse 10 says, Lord, you blew with your wind, and they sank like lead. Have you ever made the mistake of going to the beach, going into the water with your sunglasses on? <laughs> Maybe. I've lost so many pairs of sunglasses, I just forget that they're not goggles, and boom, they're gone, and I'm not getting those things back, and then my buddy Travis gets me another pair. Um, or maybe you've let something slide off your wrist or something into, you know, off the boat and into the waves. Once the ocean gets that, it's gone. There's a finality to that when you lose something in the ocean. That's what happened to Pharaoh's army. And if you read through the scriptures, Israel knew there was an enemy behind the enemy, that their sins had separated them from God. Micah 7, verses 18 and 19 says this, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's like this imagery stuck with them. God would one day handle their greatest enemy. And so the first theme in the song culminates with this praise in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Egypt and all her gods had nothing. They were nothing. They were no match for the God of Israel. And that takes us to the second theme of the song. God's people praise him for leading them home, verses 13 through 18. These next six verses are actually really interesting uh, because their content is describing things that hadn't happened yet. The Hebrew structure of the entire song actually uses verbs that describe past events. So while all scholars believe that Moses and the Israelites did sing this song at the Red Sea, um, some scholars believe the version that was recorded and included in our Bibles was actually looking back after Israel's conquest of Canaan. Look at verse 13, you have led. Verse 14, the peoples have heard. Verse 15, have melted away. Other scholars believe it to be more of a prophetic perfect tense, which is using past tense verbs. Sorry for the English or Hebrew class here. Past tense verbs describe things that will happen as if they already have, because that's how certain God's promises are to come true. And so whether these verses are reflective or prophetic, either way, these verses are recorded here that our hearts would have confidence in God's leading love. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God would lead his people, not just out of captivity through the Red Sea, but he would lead them all the way home. Some believe the phrase holy abode in verse 13 to refer to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 3.12, God says to Moses that he would lead his people to that place to serve God on that mountain. Others believe it's referring uh, to all of Canaan, to the promised land. But the word holy abode or dwelling in verse 13 is also used in the Old Testament Uh, to describe the temple in Jerusalem. If you scroll or scan down to verse 17, it says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary. The word sanctuary, which means place of holiness or set apart, in the NASB, which is the other Bible in your pew, it says, you will plant them in the mountain of your inheritance a reference to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, where the temple would be and where God would, would, would dwell with his people. But the point is just that. Whether Sinai, whether Canaan, whether the tabernacle, whether the temple, it was about God dwelling with his people. In John 1.14, we read this about Jesus. And the word became flesh in dwelt among us. Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
So the destination for the Christian is less about a place and more about a person. In the end, the Christian gets God. And between the Red Sea and Mount Zion, or between now and home with him, we must learn to sing of his steadfast love. This steadfast love in verse 13 isn't any kind of love. As one commentator puts it, it's the love which finds expression not in the beating heart, but in the decisive will. Being in love may move a couple to their wedding service, but the love they express publicly then is the love of decision and unconditional commitment, which says, I will. This is the kind of love that God has for his people. Hesed in Hebrew. It's a covenantal love. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, hesed love. And he keeps it to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And God reminds Moses of his covenantal love that's rooted in his character, in God's character, and this is what's moving God to act. And so in Exodus 6, he pulls Moses aside after Moses is coming up against some resistance to Pharaoh. And he says, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And so here in Exodus 14 and 15, the steadfast love of God for his people was displayed and magnified in his judgment of their enemies. A judgment so wondrous that surrounding enemy nations would tremble. If you look at your Bibles, verses 14 and 16, 14 through 16. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. God's lead of love would take them through the shadows of their enemies. Verse 16, because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. In the story, Pilgrim's Progress, which is a, a Christian allegory, the main character, Christian, comes up to a narrow passage in his journey where there were two lions seemingly in his way. And the story goes, the lions were chained but he saw not the chains, so he was afraid and thought also himself to go back, for he thought nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name is Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for a, tri a trial of faith where it is, and for discovery of those who have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come upon thee. Then I saw that he went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter. He heard them roar, but they did not harm him. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. 
those who were purchased by the blood of the Lamb, whom God passed over in his judgment, would now be those who passed by their enemies, and they wouldn't have to fear. And you can, if you want to in your own study, just go to the first couple of chapters of Joshua, and you can see this play out with the battle of Jericho. If you are a Christian today, in the space between here and heaven with him, do you believe in his lead of love? Even in the shadow of opposition or death, do you still believe that he is your good shepherd? Do you believe in the truth of verse 18, which they sing, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord, he is the one in control. In control, Not your circumstance, not your illness, not your enemies. He's the one who says to the waves, this far you shall come and no further. Job 38, 11. The Holy Spirit inspired these lyrics in Exodus 15 that we would have confidence that our Lord is with us and will one day take us to be with him. So church, let us sing of his love that leads us home to be remembered and to be strengthened as we sing. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I'd like to close with three applications in light of the song at the sea. And the first is this. See your sin rightly. It's easy in a story like this to cheer for Moses and Israel and to distance ourselves from the Egyptians, those, those bad guys over there. But Moses is known for recording another song in the Bible. Out of all the 150 psalms written, he wrote one, Psalm 90. It is believed that this psalm was written after the crossing, at the time Israel would be judged in the wilderness for their unbelief and their murmuring and their rebellion. And this is how Psalm 90 goes. If you turn there, I'm just going to skip a stone. Verse 1 of Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Verse 3, you return man to dust. It's like a universal condition. You sweep them away as with a flood. In verse 5. And then verse 7. Listen to the pronouns. For we, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. 
You see, Moses knew that Israel was more similar to the Egyptians than you might think. Because there is a deep human problem. Our hearts are diseased with sin, this rebellion against God. And like Pharaoh's army, God will sweep us away as with a flood. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And this is a universal problem. Like Jew, Gentile, Egyptian, the whole thing, Tampa. For all have sinned, Romans 3, 23. So my question to you is this. Do you have eyes like Moses to see that you have this sin problem too and are deserving of God's judgment. And if you don't have those eyes yet, beg God to give them to you that you might see your sin rightly. Application number two, trust the Savior. In Exodus, God provided a way for Israel to escape the wrath of Pharaoh. And when they crossed through the Red Sea, they were also spared from the judgment of God. If you look at verse 8, chapter 15, and back in Exodus, back to our song, quote, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, and Israel would pass through on dry ground. They would be spared from the judgment of God, which would soon crash over God's enemies like a flood. Verse 5, because of our sin, we deserve God's holy wrath to crash over us like a flood or a violent storm. And the stunning news of the Bible is that Jesus, Jesus would take our place. Tim Keller says, speaking to Christians, the only storm that can really destroy, the storm of divine justice and judgment on sin and evil, will never come upon you. Jesus bowed his head into that ultimate storm, willingly for you. He died receiving the punishment for sin we deserve so we can be pardoned when we trust in him. And when through faith you see him doing that for you, while it doesn't answer all the questions you have about your suffering and trials, it proves of his steadfast love for you. Jesus would bear our sins on the cross. He would pay the penalty and receive the judgment of God in our place. And for the one who has faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they can sing with the poet. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Jeremiah 31, 34, Behold, the days are coming when I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so if you want to learn about this beautiful Savior Jesus who paid the penalty for our sins and what it means to have a relationship with him, to turn from your striving and to turn from your sin and to place your trust in him, to know what it's like to not have your sins counted against you because Jesus took the penalty for us, Come find me after service or any of our members. We would love to be able to talk to you about that. Application number three. Sing the gospel often. Exodus 15, the song at the sea was recorded here for a purpose. Not just to be a record of their praise to God for their deliverance, but to instruct us to do the same. That's what Paul says in Romans 15. The Old Testament 
Yes stories, yes true, and it's for our instruction, church. And this is what Paul writes in Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So as we soak our hearts in the Bible, in the truths of who God is, his character and his glorious deeds, and again, glorious deeds, think Red Sea, think cross, think empty tomb. We should sing. And in singing, that we would lift our own weary and forgetful hearts and that our, and the weary and forgetful hearts of our neighbors. And when we sing together as a church in this room, the gospel chorus should whip through here like a pinball jolting our hearts to keep believing. And not just on Sundays, but every day we should sing the gospel, even to ourselves. Milton Vincent, in his book, Gospel Primer, gives us one of many reasons to sing the gospel to ourselves. As long as I am stricken, this is what he says, as long as I am stricken with the guilt of my sins, I will be captive to them and will keep recommitting the very sins about which I feel most guilty. The devil is well aware of this fact, and he knows that if he can keep me tormented by sin's guilt, he can dominate me with sin's power. The gospel, however, slays sin at this root point, thereby nullifying sin's power over me. The forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me first from its guilt. And preaching and my emphasis, and singing the gospel and singing about such forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as a nullifier of sin's power in my life. Do you sing the gospel to yourself? We certainly sing the gospel to one another here on Sunday, but the week gets very hard and we forget things very quickly. I will not say that we are a leaky people, but we are a leaky people, and we forget things. Do you sing the gospel? So this week, sing gospel truths with greater frequency and fervency than before. Sing in the car, on your walk, in your shower, at your kitchen table, around your kids, with your church family, and to your God. Praising God for his mighty deeds wasn't only what Israel did the shore of the Red Sea, but it's the future of God's people. In Revelation 15, we hear echoes of Moses' song, only this time they're saying around a different sea. In Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4, this is what it says. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. People of God are singing all throughout the Bible. And so, church, may we be a singing people. May we be a people that sing 
that we might remember and that our faith might be strengthened. Let's close in prayer. God, I pray that you would help our hearts to be struck by your mercy, to see all the ways throughout the Bible that you loved those who were unworthy and the ways that you shielded your people. You were faithful to your word. You keep your covenant. God, help us to see um, our sin rightly. Help us to, to be broken by our sin. You will never be beautiful to us if we don't see the gravity of our sin. God, I pray that knowing that there is a deliverance for us that place our faith in Jesus, that, that that would lead us to praise you. Lord, not just with our songs here and through the week, but with our very lives, that we would praise you. And so, Lord... We love you. We thank you for transferring us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. Help us to trust in you and in your steadfast love. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.